Hello everyone and welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. What has political journalism to do with music? Well, quite a lot, it seems. My guest today is Matt Ken Lewis from West Virginia, a political columnist for the Daily Beast, former CNN contributor, TV commentator for MSNBC's morning show, a podcaster on Matt Lewis and the News, pun intended, and a musician. Matt shares with us that he actually started his career, or better, the foundation of his later career, in the basement, rehearsing with his band. Years later, when already being a political journalist, he reflected on his music years and wrote an essay about the lessons he learned from playing in bands and how they help him to understand his work in political journalism today. We talk about his musical upbringing, country music, steel and slide guitars, and make many analogies between music and journalism. So here are the five lessons from his article that he explains in the show. So one, having an audience of followers is vital. Two, music like TV commentary involves performing. Three, playing music and being a political commentator isn't nearly as glamorous as people think. And four, not every song or blog post or column is a hit. Five, collaboration is key. Okay, let's get right into it. Welcome, Matt. Welcome to the power of music thinking. Well, thank you for having me. Great to meet you. Matt, let's dive right into the, into the session with my, I always call it the retool question because I do it every, every time. So what was your first sonic experience or album or performance that had an impact on you well according to legend my mom so my dad used to play in a country and western band called irene and the country rascals and they would play in the like in the 1970s they would play a lot of carnivals and according to my mom uh even when i was in her womb i was playing the bass with my foot Mm -hmm. uh, along with my dad's bass guitar, as she said in the audience. So that, I guess, would be my first experience. Not really a memory. My first memory would probably be, um, I was thinking about it just this Christmas. My uh, my dad loved, there was a, a country musician named Charlie Pride, mm -hmm. who had an album called Christmas in My Hometown. And I still listen to it to this day because, you know, a lot of Christmas music, a lot of Christmas albums are kind of recycled and he had a lot of original songs that i thought were really good they blended in kind of the santa claus christmas with the christ christmas mm. um and it was very well done and i just can remember being at like a christmas party parents and my aunts and uncles they're playing cards or board games or something and i'm sitting on the floor like listening to that and it was a very it's a feeling of of safety and comfort 
Yeah, and also family, every everyone together like a community. Yeah. Sounds Absolutely. very good. Absolutely. And I think I think kids crave that, but music is a part of it. And um I I just think for me that uh and especially even though later on I went on to play in, in like modern rock bands, um, I will always have an affinity for country music and those twangy steel guitars that were very popular back in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, I always have uh, a reverence, a deep abiding respect, I think, for that kind of music. Nice. Nice. Steel guitar. Wow. Great. And so you also play the steel guitar, right? Well, no, you know, it's funny. I took guitar lessons from a really good uh, teacher named Dale Hooper, who taught me how to, using the electric guitar, do a sort of a faux steel guitar sound. So I can take, you know, the steel guitar is basically, uh, it's like a table, you know, that you, you play it sort of like with a slide. Um, but I can make, I can come close to making those sounds with a regular guitar. Um, and so if you don't have a steel guitar player, you just have a lead guitar player. If he knows what he's doing, he can simulate those sounds. And that's what I have learned to do. And, uh, I used to play in a band called uh, the Backyard Apples, and several t several of our songs I would uh, incorporate that sound in our music. Yeah, it's nice, and it's a nice glissando. So it's all always the in between. So it's it's in tune, out of tune, playing playing with these two, yeah, these two moments. And it's so, um, and I think it's probably came from Hawaiian music at some point. It it, it came to America. I'm guessing I'm I'm not an a, an expert on it, but it, it, I think it comes from Hawaiian music. But that sound ended up ended up becoming like so iconic and so tied country music, especially I would say in the 1970s. Um, and it will if you hear it, it will for me at least it it, it takes you back to a time and place. Yeah, absolutely. What what I like is there. It seems like there are two different tempos because. In country, often also can be quick. Like if you have a banjo, there's a lot going on, and the Hawaii guitar is going in a, in a different layer over all these, uh, let's say, yeah, uh, this, um, yeah, uh, all these little little sounds. Uh, the Hawaii guitar is, um, yeah, covering this. Yeah, up. so I guess the, I mean, I guess the acoustic version is the dobro. It's called a dobro, yeah. a dobro, and then uh, the electric version is a steel guitar. Um, and I, and I like both, but you're right. Um, it, it's, it's amazing just within, even if you never left kind of folk traditional country music, the range within that, that type of music is, is so broad. And there's so like, you could spend, you could devote your whole life to that and never, <laughs> never become an expert. Absolutely. And I like it in that way, because then if you play it on a regular guitar, you you just leave the, the frets w where they are. And um, and then you it feels a little bit more like a violin as well, because then <laughs> you have the, the whole range that, um, yeah, that you can tune in and tune out into what you want to do. It's uh, it is great stuff. And it's I. I, I still to this day, um in my work in journalism, not only do I apply the lessons, a lot of the lessons that I learned from playing in bands to my journalism today, but 
I'm sure that you've heard this before, but like I have music on a lot of times. Well, maybe it's when I'm brainstorming ideas or sometimes even when I'm writing, I will be listening to music. Mm. So it is just an incredible part of my life. And I assume almost everybody. And if I meet somebody who just doesn't like music, that uh, I'm a little skeptical of that person usually. <laughs> yeah, that's also interesting to to tune in to people and to find out if we like the same music or if we can learn from each other because we have different uh, kinds of uh, music. Uh, Matt, will you share with us, who are you? What do you do for a living? And then we cycle back between uh, what you do and the music. All right. So um, my name is Matt Lewis and I uh, I live in West Virginia. I'm a political columnist and commentator. I'm center right. So I'm I'm a conservative, but not a Trump, not a Trump fan, but I am a conservative. And I write for an outlet called The Daily Beast, which is a pretty big and important, I would call it, you know, a mainstream outlet. And I am a conservative columnist for The Daily Beast. I also do TV appearances. I used to be a CNN contributor, but now I mostly am doing MSNBC's Morning Joe. I'm on fairly frequently to talk about my writing. And on top of everything else, I also have a podcast called Matt Lewis and the News. And in case you didn't know, that's a reference uh, to Huey Lewis and the News. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, nice some pun. people are too young. <laughs> some people are too young to know the reference. But, but um, they might know some songs. Oh, yeah. Like uh, the power of love. Yeah, or stuck with Back you. Yeah. So yeah, so I, I experienced this when when you when you talk with younger people, um, they're not really interested in let's say the old stories about music and and uh, but on the other hand, they like the music itself if they hear them for the first time. Say, oh, that's nice. Oh yeah, but that's what I'm talking about. But that's not the but that's not the point. So it's really they they access it directly to the music. Yeah, I think a common theme with me is is blatant nostalgia. And Huey Lewis was huge when I was like 10 years old. And so uh, not only is it, I think, empirically really good music, but it's 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 my music, you know. And so the heart of rock and roll and it's hip to be square and yeah, stuck with one. you and all those songs. And if you've ever seen the movie American Psycho. Uh, there's also that's the other pop culture reference, I think, to Huey Lewis in the news, uh, more disturbing than Back to the Future, but nevertheless important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was big in the 80s, isn't it? Or or earlier. Um. So, Hugh, yeah, Huey Lewis's music, I think, definitely peaked in the mid 80s. When did American Psycho come out? I want to say 90s, probably. And um, you wrote a column. Uh, where you share your musical learnings and you relate it to your political journalism uh, things that you're doing today. C can you share with us um, all these um, all these findings, all these parallels or analogies? Absolutely. So first of all, I think this ties into my nostalgia and sort of search for understanding of who I am and why I am the way I am, which I think is healthy. Uh, Joan Didion had some quote about, uh, you know, we're, we're well advised to keep in touch with the people we used to be. Otherwise, they show up at the middle of the night, you know, demanding to know what happened to them. <laughs> I'm butchering her quote, but it's something to that effect. 
Um, and so a few years ago, I started doing a lot of kind of just introspection. And one of the things that I always kind of felt bad about, you know, my parents worked really hard. My dad was a prison guard for 30 years in Hagerstown, Maryland. And my parents worked really hard to kind of give me a middle-class life and try to put me through college and all that. And here I was like living in their basement, playing in a rock band. And they must have felt, even though my dad had been a very accomplished musician, I think he even kind of felt like, you know, hey, man, uh, the world's tough. My son's a loser. You need to get out there and uh, and make something of yourself. And and I kind of look back, uh, a little bit regrettably about my days playing music as if I had wasted a lot of time and I was um, maybe I would have been better off if I'd like applying myself in journalism classes or in politics. And And then it hit me. I had this epiphany where it occurred to me that actually playing in rock bands was an amazing training ground for everything I do today and that I learned a ton of lessons. And so I wrote a blog post. I used to work at a place called The Daily Caller. And if you're familiar with Tucker Carlson, he's very yeah. famous now. He's got his own Fox News show. Absolutely. Uh, he was my boss. And so I'm at The oh, Daily wow. <laughs> Yeah, I'm at The Daily Beast now, but I wrote this at The Daily Caller. And so I'll give you an example of a few of the things that I wrote about that I learned. The first thing is that having an audience of followers really matters. And so like when I first started playing in a band, I assumed the key was to like hone your craft and become a really good musician and sound great. And then you would record like a demo tape or a demo CD. And that would get you booked at a bar or a club. And then people would hear how great your music was and word would spread and you'd become famous and you'd be on MTV. And later I learned that, that actually isn't how it works. The key was, first of all, when you go to a bar, you don't say, listen to our demo tape, hear how good we sound. What you say is we have a mailing list of 500 people. And if you book us Friday night, we'll bring a hundred people to drink Bud Lights and, you know, <laughs> gin and tonics. We'll sell a lot of drinks for you and we'll, we'll pack the bar. And so what I learned is that if you want to make it in music, you have to be very good at public relations and building lists and followers and a fan base. And guess what? <laughs> That's very <laughs> similar to journalism nowadays. So that was lesson one. Lesson two. But maybe one question. That, what's what's yeah. the order here? So first to be a musician and then you have a list uh, of all your audience or first you try to, to find out how public relations work and then you start as a musician is there any order which comes first uh in terms of what i did or what you should do <laughs> <laughs> whatever you I however you, you want the... to answer that question <laughs> so the way i did it was uh i tried to become good at music first and then i realized there was nobody in the crowd there were no like no matter how good we sounded there was no fans and we couldn't get booked And so I don't think it's necessarily in terms of the order you do it, but I think in terms of the priority, um, what I learned is that you have to put a lot higher priority on building a fan base. Mm. And that unfortunately, when it comes to being successful, the quality of your music was not as important as um, the fan base and your ability to mobilize and turn out, turn out. And so... Mm. This is before the internet, but having things like an email newsletter nowadays would be the modern equivalent. We had a postcard that we would send out and I would work the phones. I would I would pick up the phone and call a hundred friends and be like, hey, are you coming out tonight? You know, you're going to come out and see us tonight. 
begging people to come support the band and building a community actually was a lot of my work was building. I will say the one great thing is I'm an introvert and I'm very shy. And so having a flyer, you know, like a, a po like something to hand somebody uh, was a great way for me to get over my nervousness and meet girls. Yeah. And so That's it did pay off in that regard. Um, but what I learned is I ended up putting in at least as much, half of my time was devoted to the business stuff. If you want to be successful, and I think in writing is the same way in journalism. You could become a great writer. You could write like Hemingway. You could have the best sources. But um, unless you have a Twitter following or a newsletter or a way to distribute your content and people who are clicking and retweeting and liking your stories and, and downloading the podcast, you're not going to be that successful in this business either. Absolutely. So you can be an introvert, but don't show it. Yes, I've been hiding it my whole life. <laughs> but actually, like I said, it's a tool for overcoming your shyness, too. Yeah. I, I was able to justify like, OK, I'm going to go up and talk to these people because it's for my band. Yeah. It's not for me. I, I, I couldn't I couldn't muster the nerve to go up and talk to them on my own. But I had a reason like we've got a show tomorrow night. I've got a talking point. I've got a flyer, something to hand them, a poster to hand them. or, um, And so it, it was a good, it was sort of a win-win for me, I think. Wow, nice. So that was the audience, the audience link between yes. the one field and the other field. Totally. And then the second thing was that both are about performing. Um, you know, nowadays I have to get up in front of a crowd and give a speech or I have to get up in front of a TV camera and talk and back in the old days i used to have to get up in front of a crowd and play guitar or sing and overcoming nerves at stage fright is a common denominator and i think a lot of even developing my voice i never was a great singer i never had a great voice but the process of singing and working on my ear i think has helped me as a communicator verbally But mostly it was just overcoming stage fright and knowing how to rise to the occasion. And the practice I got was playing at bars for people who didn't want to be there, didn't want to hear me, uh, you know, um, and then overcoming bad things that happen. You might be in the middle of a performance and a fight breaks out or a fire alarm goes off or they still <laughs> got the house music playing while you're trying to perform your music. All of these things could happen if you're giving a speech or if you're on TV as well. And so that really, I think, benefited me and, and continues to. It's a great training. And uh, the more training, the better your performance. Another thing I learned was that it's not as glamorous as you think, you know? Like we might look at rock bands like Led Zeppelin or The Who and think, or The Beatles. The Beatles are a classic example. Girls screaming, you know, when The Beatles perform or show up in America. In real life, Playing in a band for me involved, you know, showing up at like three o'clock in the afternoon. We didn't have roadies. So we had to like load equipment into this beat up van. And because it was a, a beat up van, then one of us had to like put his foot on the brakes while the other one had to climb under the van, risking life and limb to basically put it in first gear, <laughs> <laughs> risking being, being, you know, run over. Then we would arrive at the bar, let's say at 5 p.m., and start unloading. 
nobody knows that you're even coming, that you're even supposed to be there. The doors might be locked. You know, then you play a few, you know, you might play all night. You take a few breaks. As soon as it's over, you can't even sit and talk to people, even if they loved you, even if you have these now fans who want to hang with you. You're like, okay, well, we're going to have a party afterwards, but just wait 45 minutes while I carry all this heavy, you know, load the drums back into the van. <laughs> now it's 2 a.m. Everyone else is, they're having fun. Uh, it's not as glamorous as it looks. And I would say actually political journalism is more glamorous than playing in a rock band, believe <laughs> it or not. And maybe look, if you're the Beatles, that's a different story. But at my level, uh, there was a lot less carrying heavy equipment. <laughs> <laughs> but still in all, um, it's a job and it's a gig and it's hard work. And you may think you might watch uh, all the president's men or think you're going to be Woodward and Bernstein or something. Uh, in, in real life, there's a lot of a lot of thankless hard work uh, before you become before you get your Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> But you're on your way to the Pulitzer Prize in that way. <laughs> and you're prepared very well, so to hear. Well, the good thing about journalism is, like music, uh, there's a chance at stardom and a chance at fame. And, and you do have applause to keep you going. There are fans and applause to keep you going. But unlike music, unlike the rock business, um, they usually pay you. I mean, if you're a freelance writer, they may not pay you. But I forgot to mention the part about the end of the night when you've played music for hours, when you have to try to get paid by the bar owner who suddenly disappears or wants to charge you for the beer you drank <laughs> instead of paying you. Yeah. Um, so because I'm an employee and not a freelance writer, um, I tend to get paid. And so uh, I, I think that the journalism business is actually more fun uh, and more um, more monetarily rewarding <laughs> You can actually have a life. You can still have a family. Um, and so uh, that's that's one point for the uh, the journalism business. Another thing I learned is just like not every song is going to be a hit, not every column or blog post is going to be a hit. And getting used to things like rejection and failure um, and just keep on moving, stay, you know, continue to progress and get better. Um you can't have these delusions of grandeur that everything's going to be a hit. There are many times that I write a column, something that I think is decent and it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't, mm. I don't get invited on TV to talk about it. And so that was something else I got used to, uh, was the demoralizing effect of, <laughs> of people not caring. I learned that playing music and it has helped me in journalism. And then the, the last thing, that I learned that I'll talk about is the importance of collaboration. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're in a rock band, you're basically married to four or five dudes usually. And, um, even if you write the song and your name is on it, someone laid down the baseline, probably someone came up with the title. It's, it's a, it's a collaboration. And that was one of the most fun things I had was writing songs and with these other friends of mine um, and working together and crafting something beautiful, like, hey, let's come in with the harmonica here or that part I love. And I have that with my writing, even a book. You know, I wrote a, I'm writing a book now uh, and, I, and I had a book that came out in 2016 called Too Dumb to Fail. And even though it's my name, you know, I have the byline 
I had so many people who were involved, editors, people who just helped give me ideas that I quoted in the book or cited in the book or people that brainstormed with me. Um, it is a collaborative process. And I, I really love that. So um, I have to say, I don't think it was wasted time. I don't think I was just a loser in my parents' basement. I think I was honing a craft that that eventually paid off in the world of of writing. So actually, the the learning here is really to support your kids when they when they're when they're in the basement because there will come something out of it, and maybe they will not be a big star, but they will understand what it means to be a star or it means not to being a star. So I think that's um, that's a very very big uh, learning. Also. Um, that not every song is a hit um when w you just made the the comparison with the with the uh, with the a text you wrote where you think oh that's a good one now let's get it out and you just wait so that everybody's coming to you and say hey hey can i book you for an interview and it yeah. doesn't happen so Is there also a little bit in, in self-reflection or because you always have the question, is it me or is it the others? Am I the, the great artist and the others yeah, don't like that kind of music? Or is it the other way around? Oh, I have thought much too much <laughs> about it and I think I'm good, but actually I don't. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think... Um... I've always believed that there should be some um, combination of of integrity with sales. So I would not want to just churn out a column to get clicks or a book just to sell books. At the same time, uh, I, I do want to sell books and I do want people to read my columns. And the same thing was true with music. I wouldn't want to sell out and just put out, you know, bubblegum pop that just sells records, but doesn't have a soul, doesn't have heart. I mean, it's important to me to be putting out work that matters. Hmm. And so, but for me, uh, it should sell. The, the free market also decides, and I know there have been brilliant people who were not appreciated during their day, during their time. And we're only later appreciated. I don't deign to believe that I'm one of them. You know, that I think that's a very, <laughs> you have to be, you either have to be legitimately brilliant or a complete narcissist to think that people just don't get it. Everyone just doesn't get it, right? <laughs> I assume if it's not good, if it doesn't sell eventually, uh, that it was my, it was my fault. And so, uh, and I think there is a sweet spot where you can combine work uh, that is smart and meaningful, but also has an audience. And so I've always, I strive for, for that, for that middle ground where I can have my cake and eat it too. Um, but I think there is a time where people might say, look, this isn't for me. And that's what happened with me and music. I, I, I still love music. I still play my kids right now. I have, uh, one son who plays piano and is getting pretty good. And another who just started taking drum lessons. And I think he just looks like a drummer. He's just body language uh, for what that's worth. So I'm very interested in music. I listen to music constantly. I still play, but it's not for me as a career. And I just had to, I had to accept that at some point. And lucky for me, I found this other career that's also creative that gives me, it scratches all the itches that I had. 
and it's also romantic. It's also a chance to achieve a modicum of of recognition and or fame and using creativity. But it's but it's more who I am. And I've been able to actually have a family and make a living as a journalist, whereas I could not. <laughs> Even if I made enough money as a working musician, my lifestyle would have been not family conducive, shall we say, <laughs> and working in bars and casinos and things like that. So um, I guess my message to parents is there may be if your kids are doing something, a hobby or if they have a dream that uh, that seems to be a little crazy or unrealistic, it may be that they're learning lessons now that will come in handy later on i think that's a very very nice uh, very nice put together because it's always not about the parents because they don't know everything so it's also trust your kids i i hear a little bit be between the lines trust them if they find something and they find it interesting and i think maybe it's also no matter what it is and because in the power of music thinking, I'm looking for the analogies. So while learning an instrument, learning also that not everything is going from alone. So it's always rehearsing, trying to 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 manage to play something. And um, that's also an advice that that I sometimes give to to um, managers to start learning an instrument, maybe an instrument that you might not have taken before. And trying to to find out that not everything can be delegated, that there's something and also some joy in learning something, to mastering something, to um, let's put in the word craft, to, to really make something uh, uh, out of it. And I think that's something that you can compare with all the other things that you can learn or, or you might learn in, in daily life, that when there's something hard, you can also try hard to manage it. And when you manage it, it's not just over. I think that's the good thing with an, with an instrument, that it just starts because then you can that part. And then uh, a real world opens into, into new things. So I think that the learning instrument. And yeah, no, that that is that is well said. And I think that just as you become a better writer with more practice, uh, you become a better musician, better guitar player. But the rehearsal thing, I think, is key. I should have put that one on my list. You've got a big performance coming up, and you work until you can play this thing blindfolded, you, you know, uh, and you know it like the back of your hand. That skill will be applied to, I've got a book coming out, and I have to go do the interview circuit, and I need to be ready to answer this question and that question. I better rehearse. I better really know the stuff, put in the work and the muscle memory. And uh, that's absolutely true. It will teach a work ethic. And yeah. also learning that you can improve is motivational. Seeing yourself improve at something will teach you that you can improve at other things. Absolutely. Let, let's put, let's say, two two worlds together: the political world and the, and the music world. And in in the pre-talk, um, we all, we we talked about that famous picture from Bill Clinton playing, who was a saxophone player, uh, playing saxophone for Boris Yeltsin. So, meaning the American president playing saxophone for the Russian president. Something that in in our uh, times at the moment, that's yeah, you you. you 
can't even think about it. Um, do, do you know more about that uh, about that um, story? And maybe a second question after it: um, Do you? What do you think? What music and political? How can how can they how can they learn from each other? Or, how, or when could we bring in more music into poli into into politics? I mean, for me, the more famous saxophone moment was Bill Clinton playing saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show in 1992. He's running for president and he comes out playing uh, a saxophone. He's wearing like these these sunglasses looking cool. And I think that really helped him connect with young people at the time. You know, um, so it was it was a political tool in a sense to signal yeah. that he was cool. Um, but in terms of kind of performing with another political leader, I think that, um, you know, just as we have dinner with someone to bond and connect with them, or you might have a drink with someone and there's just this innate, if you're having it with someone, everybody talks about like the beer test, you know, we, we vote for the president. You'd want to have a beer with, I'd rather have a beer with George Bush than Al Gore or whatever. I think that playing music is probably even more intimate. I mean, mm. if you are jamming with someone and you're you're picking up instruments and performing together, um, that is an even more intimate experience. And so if you can play music with someone and enjoy music with someone, then I think that's bound to, uh, to unite you with that person to a certain degree. And um, building relationships are, are key to everything including diplomacy absolutely I, i like that very much and even if we bring if we get further in the world it's not only western musical instruments but uh, yeah. for also instruments that you think okay but how do we play uh, how do we tune if if the indians have 22 shrutis in one octave and we only have 12 hang on what do we miss Or and and this would this would be interesting to yeah to tune in to tune together and um, yeah make something out of it and and maybe also maybe also first rehearse and don't do it on stage <laughs> yeah <laughs> only the two or three I... together without any advisors just yeah just showing that there is uh, yeah the will to 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 have some resonance with each other and then the words come in later to yeah to make sense for all the other complicated things we're um, yeah we hear daily uh, every day on tv i'm sure that there is, another thought i have is i'm sure that there are people who are great musicians who are let's say fascists but it strikes me That if you're the kind of person who would be um, jamming with someone and doing improvisational music and collaborating, that's a pluralistic thing. That's an open mind. That means I'm, I'm open minded. I'm open to different points of view. I'm open to the give and take. And um, I suspect that that would translate to an open mindedness, if nothing else, a plural. And by the way, I mean, I'm I'm again, I, I'm. I'm like a pluralistic conservative, if that means anything. Our, 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 our labels these days are really messed up. Absolutely, um, yeah. And so it's very hard to define who is what. The old rules, for one thing, are out the window. But um, even though I am someone who is on the center right of American politics, 
I am like a lot of other people who are where I am. Uh, I'm very, I want to live in a pluralistic society that embraces like liberal values, for example. And it just strikes me that that's very consistent with what you would have with someone who was jamming with someone else. Uh, the give and take that comes from playing music with someone and maybe collaborating with them. Absolutely. And that resonates a lot with me because I think that's the difference in having a, a perspective on something or trying to to pull someone into your perspective. So I think that's a very good one because, um, yeah, you never know if you look from different perspectives. You know, sometimes it looks totally different from the other side. Indeed. I like that very much. So, Matt, is there anything that we didn't touch between music and politics? Um, we didn't talk about Richard Nixon, uh, who was pretty good on the piano. Absolutely. Um, I think we did a good job. I mean, you know. You soon endure, for say... example. You know, you soon endure. He was um, uh, then, um, he had that yeki yeki hit. And then he was, oh, yeah. I think, cultural or I don't know which kind of minister in the, uh, what is it, Senegal, I think. Oh, yeah. There was, that reminds me, there was, there was one story I wanted to tell you, which is a few years ago, um, we had a, I had a meeting with the, you know, I write for the Daily Beast. And we had a meeting in D.C. They're based in New York, but we met in Washington, D.C., And at some point during the conversation, there were five of us there. And um, one of them was Noah Shackman, who is now runs the New Republic. I'm sorry. He now runs Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone magazine, the music, the famous music. Magazine. Right. One of them was Michael Tomaski, who now runs the New Republic. Um, I was there. So there were there were like five of us. And of the five of us, John, one of them was John Ablon, who is, is now at CNN. Um, of the five of us, four of the five had been very serious musicians. And I'm saying like, that was our profession. Uh, like I played, for example, at the Philadelphia Music Conference, which is now defunct, but that was a kind of a big deal back in the 90s. That's kind of one of my, you know, on, on my music resume. Um, John Avalon, I think, had fronted like a, a punk band or something. Um, and it just struck me as I don't think it was a I don't I do not think it was a coincidence that of the five of us meeting, four of the five of us were not just dabblers or dilettantes, but like very serious musicians. And I suspect that there are that it's a gateway into journalism, that there are a lot of people who begin Uh, with maybe delusions of grandeur of being famous musicians who end up transitioning into journalism. And I, you know what I should do is I should have them on someday and ask them, like, you know, did that experience help you with what you're doing? now? I, I think I know the answer. But, <laughs> um, but you know, there's this whole thing about being a failed artist. And I but I think that there's there's something to it. Yeah, you can see it from that part, but um, it's, it's a very nice story because I think musicians are natural collaborators. 
And you can do this on different levels. So you can be an amateur musician, but very dedicated. Uh, or you can be a, a, a prof musician, but later you switch to to something else. But I think you're you're a natural collaborator, and if you're and if this is a natural to to you, it's always easy to make something together and to come to something um, with words we would say a consent <laughs> or sometimes yeah. even a compromise. And in the music world, you would say oh, it's some a special song, and uh, I think that's the yeah I think that's the power. Of music and uh, and if we put the analogy further, the power of music thinking to work with the yeah natural collaborators. Totally, I love collaboration. I love working with people, building something, creating something. And I have to say, back when I had my delusions of grandeur, when I wanted to kind of be a rock star, I wanted to be one, sort of like Bono, who hmm. didn't just. Like I, I wanted to use that as a platform, the success from our music as a platform to say something important and deeper and even political sometimes, the way that Bono has 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 used his um his platform, I think, for good. And um I get to write about ideas all the time. I mean, I'm not suggesting that something I write dramatically changes the world, but maybe it nudges it a little bit every once in a while and that's all you can ask for as a writer or as an artist is to nudge the world, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I'm sure some people, uh, have more impact and influence than others, but it's just an honor. My, like I said before, my dad was a prison guard for 30 years. So the fact that I get paid to write and to talk about politics and that someone may listen to something that I said or wrote, and it may change their thinking. That's that's a dream come true. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, Matt. Matt, thank you very much for all your insights and stories. And yeah, thank you. This was so much fun. I really appreciate you uh, having me on. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate this because listening is one of the top leadership skills and I feel honored about this. It is my mission to find, create, and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies. If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating, or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. And more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog, and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com.